All right, I'm going to catch me now. We got you know, let <laughs> give me a second. All right, I'm about to do an ad read for Vice Golf. I don't even have a read, so this is a this is an ad lib. This is an ad libbed lib read. Anyway, Vice Golf, you all know I love the brand. Uh, they make a great golf ball, and there are things that I would tell you in person about the golf ball that I can't tell you in a public forum. But basically, the golf ball is amazing. Technically speaking, on tests, it performs as good or better than what we call, quote, the best golf ball on tour. Now, the Vice Golf Ball also has one cool thing, which is that it's cool. Obviously, the scripting is really sweet. But beyond that, as another cool thing, I'm going to keep pulling cool things out of this ball. The second cool thing is that you can't get it in a pro shop. So go online, go to vicegolf.com, and get your slick balls. They've got all different types. They've got the Tour. They've got the Drive. They've got the Pro. They've got the Pro Plus. They've got different colors. And you can also personalize less than uh, – you can personalize. I don't know what number you can personalize, but you can personalize them, whereas other brands don't let you personalize them except for once a year. So check out vicegolf.com. Get yourself some smooth and cool balls for the course, that is. Anyway, y'all, see you in the showers until the next ad read. All right, one more ad read. I'll probably do another one after this. Jones Sports Go, folks. If you want the bag that I rock, it's the Jones Sports Bag. They got the Player Series. They got the original. What are the other? What's the other models they got? The stand bags? We're pulling it up in the studio, folks. But here's the thing. Jones if you haven't seen the video on YouTube yet, please check it out. We went up there, visited with them. We designed a lot of cool stuff. We're going to be designing more stuff. We have two bags on the Random Golf Club site that have the Random Golf Club script on it. The Utility Trooper is the is the is the info I'm getting of the name of the other bag that I like. It's got the stand. It's got the stand bag. I also I I mostly rock the original, which is based on a design from the 70s. Uh, was his name Jones? His name was Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones and me. Now that guy got in a lot of trouble for some what's that taxi caps but the but the guy who sang the song Mr. Jones he's no he's gotten a lot of trouble don't want to talk about him but Mr. Jones not that the song is written about was a taxi driver in New York he made a golf bag out of the upholstery in his taxi and that's where Jones has come from so they're obviously the comfortable shoulder strap on the original series is what I love got a lot of cargo space and you got three pockets to hold all your clubs and you look basically like a badass you're 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 if you're if you don't have a if you don't have a significant other at, at the start of the round, you will have one at the end. Am I right? Watch out! It's, it's you know that's the studio here says, get a Jones bag. I'm not going to say get laid, but basically that's what's going to happen. I mean, I, I didn't say it. You said it. You heard it. I didn't say it. Jones Sports Go, everybody, love them. All right, everybody. Every minute, the equivalent of one dump truck of plastic enters our oceans. That's that's sixty dump trucks a minute. Okay, that's twelve. That's that's twelve hundred. Thirteen hundred and twenty. That doesn't sound right. Thousands of dump trucks every day. Plastic enters the oceans. This plastic doesn't just. Gotta get my glasses on. Affect marine life. It affects. It ends up in our food as microplastics. Plastic is a problem. That's why Adidas is aiming to end plastic waste by 2024. Wow. That's a that's incredible. You mean within their own company, not within the world. 100% of Adidas products. Yeah, okay. Here. <laughs> problem solved. 100% of Adidas products will be made by recycled polyester by 2024. That's rad because I use a water bottle, folks. I know that Adidas doesn't make it, but it's not. Plastic water bottles are just, they're bad. 
I mean, you, sometimes you got to do it, but they're bad. Adidas Golf is doing their part this week by introducing the limited edition Prime Blue Code Chaos footwear for both men and women, made in part with parley. Excuse me. I just had some pretzels and ginger beer. Okay. In part with parley ocean plastic. This recycled yarns, the recycled yarns in the footwear are made from plastic that was collected from beaches and coastal communities, preventing it from entering our oceans. From problem to performance, pick up your pair now at adidas.com. For more info about the latest products from Adidas Golf, go to adidas.com and throw Adidas Golf and follow on Instagram and Twitter. One, two, three. One, two, three. Testing. One, two, three. Sound check is complete. Welcome to the Eric Andrews Lang Show. <laughs> You're like Joe Rogan, man. You just like dive right in. It's like, thank you. I appreciate that. Unlike Joe Rogan, we will not be uh, smoking anything in here. And there will be, there will be, they uh, might frown on that. Here. They, they wouldn't like that. We're in the... Uh, and then also, we're going to keep it to under five hours. He does a long pod. Yeah, he does. Um Randall, thank you so much for allowing me into your world. Uh, and, oh, my and, pleasure. And being on the show. Yeah, real, real pleasure. I mean, uh, I've enjoyed your work. I, I live vicariously through you. I'm like, I want this guy's travel schedule. I, I want to be the places where you're at, doing the things you're doing. But I'm usually stuck right here in this fabulous little office, this little cubicle. We can, uh, for, for the people listening, if you're driving a lawnmower or a car, we are inside of the uh, of the uh, Golf Channel HQ in uh, Orlando, Florida, and we're in. Is is this your den here, the analyst? This room? is it. This is my den, and it is nowhere near as cool as Joe Rogan's man cave. <laughs> nowhere near. I, I I have no no articles that are really important to me, other than yellow legal pads. I have to have an endless supply of yellow legal pads and pens. I'm very particular about my pens. Lots of TVs in here. Computers up and running. Um, this is it. I get geeky in here watching golf. That's about all that happens in here. This is kind of, this is like basically your man cave a little bit. <laughs> this is kind of. This is it. Yeah, it's kind of. Yes. We have, um, I, we don't need to go into too much detail here uh, because like I said, if, oh, if you're listening and you want to see what we're doing, this is going to be on YouTube as well, the full pod, and then we're going to hopefully play some golf soon. Yes. Yeah. And we'll, we'll cut get all out that and play, play a few holes next week if, you, if, if, I, if you're available. I know. <laughs> If you're available, it's tough to get into your social schedule. <laughs> we have uh, on this table here, I'm looking at, um, looks like about a dozen sheets of yellow uh, paper lined. And it it looks like if you were in the airport and they found this, they would probably pull you into extra screening. <laughs> I don't know what on earth this is. It looks encrypted. Do yes. you have a name? Just can't, We don't need to know too much about it, but what yeah. is this called? Well, it's just my graphs. You know, I chart every shot that's hit on TV, and you know, and then I try to follow those shots to their, you know, their conclusion. Like, do they represent a trend? You know, are they an aberration? And then I, you know, obviously I augment all the shots hit on TV with the shots that I can dig up online, which is pretty much every shot, and I represent birdies with circles and pars with X's and bogeys with squares, and then I write how far the player hit it. What is it? Left side of the fairway, right side of the fairway. They missed the fairway. They hit it in the bunker. How long they hit into the green? How close they hit it? Was it above the hole? Was it below the hole? And on and on and on and on and on and it goes. And then I'll follow all those details and look for trends and try to come up with, at the end of the night, some distillation of all this stuff that is interesting to our viewer. And, you know, when I'm on the air and I have these, you know, I always have, for majors, I'll have le scores of legal pads filled up. 
But typically, I'll go through two or three just on a regular tour event. But when I'm on the air, I can just refer to these very quickly. I can look down, and you start talking about a random player who maybe he's not a superstar, but you know maybe he's just a random player who pops up and he's playing pretty good. I can just very quickly look down and get a sense of every shot he hit that day. Right. And is he is he likely to contend on the weekend, or maybe is he not? Because I, I try to keep track of whether or not a player overperforms or underperforms relative to their statistics the closer he gets to the lead. You know, you know that's a that's that's a tedious thing to keep track of, but but you can do it, and and that way you can get you know closer to being accurate with your analysis. Is there is this like golf's money ball, and is there <laughs> is there like a is there one trend you've seen that <clears throat> could identify a potential winner to you early on, or or in the weeks? Well, yeah, I mean, how you know the the single best way to separate yourself from the rest of the players in the world is with your iron play. It's not anywhere else. It's your iron play. If you're looking for the money ball statistic, it is 150 yards to 225 yards. And it's the longer irons. <clears throat> and yes. that was Tiger's best stat. There you Number go. Number one. There you go. So, you know, your you know, your golf. So, <clears throat> shorter irons, people always say, hey, he's got to get better at his wedge game or whatever. Well, on average, you only got to less than tour players will have less than two shots around 50 to 125 yards but the thing about wedge shots is if you miss a wedge shot the dispersion is not that great okay if you hit a bad wedge and you're a tour player it's going to be 28 feet if you you know if you hit a pretty good one it's going to be 18 feet well you don't make that many 28 footers and you don't make that many 18 footers so that the dispersion is not that great it's right. not you're not going to struggle from 28 feet okay but from 200 yards, the dispersion is enormous. Especially if you're looking at me. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and that's true of, you know, all amateur golfers. But it's also true of professional golfers. And if you hit a, you know, if you're a great iron player from 175 to 225 yards, as Tiger was, and the dispersion there is such that it really causes an issue if you start hitting poor irons and subsequently or Inversely, if you're hitting great irons, you've got a huge advantage. Tiger sometimes would lead that proximity of the hole by feet. Then wow. and, and, and inches separate, you know, scores of players. But he'd lead it by two feet, three feet. And he did that forever. So iron play, when you see somebody pop up who is having a great week with their irons, well, they've got the potential then to separate themselves. Of course, all the other elements you know, have varying degrees of importance, but that's certainly one thing you look for. Um, and, and it was, you're right, it was absolutely why Tiger dominated. I have so many questions floating <laughs> through my head. I'm, I'm curious to know, we were, we were uh, well, first off, say you're in Italy and someone says, well, in an Italian accent, which I'm not going to try to emulate, <laughs> what do you do, right? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you explain what you do briefly? I mean, your, your career has had many arms and legs and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's probably hard to contextualize for somebody, but how do you, how do you go about it? Well, you know, I, I would just, I, you know, I analyze golf and they, you know, I, I, then I would hear a snooze on the other side over there. It's like, you know, it's like you do what you get paid to do that. Uh, you know, if I was in Italy, I'd, I hope I'd be somewhere where nobody had asked me that question, but, but, uh, you know, I, I analyze golf for a living, which, you know, it, it, it sounds pretty boring, but golf has been my life. You know, it's uh, as a player, I was pretty analytical, but I was I was 
very much interested in the history of the game. And, and as I got into television, the more I got into television, uh, I thought, you know, how can I say something that nobody else has said? How can I say it in a way that nobody else has said it so that it, it's memorable? Um, because people are listening at home and they're relaxed and it's like you want to say something, you want to tell them something that you love about the game, that you're passionate about and you want to share it with them and you want to do it in such a way that resonates with them. So, you know, you, you dive in, you try to come up with something nobody else has said, nobody else has thought of and that takes a lot of work. It takes a hell of a lot of work. I, I always say that by the, time we, by the time we come on the air, everything that could possibly be said about the golf has already been said about the golf. You know, everything. You know, it's like when we do live froms, we're on the air seven to nine, typically. And you think about it. People have been talking about the golf since the sun came up. And they have talked about every single shot, every single player, and there's nothing left to say. And it's like, well, if you want something to say, you got to work a little. you got to work. And, you know, it'll take me all day long to come up with some angle or some idea about, you know, three, four, five players, whatever we have time for in two hours. And then I'll try to illustrate that where the team of all the people on – live from will, will help me illustrate with graphics or statistics i'll dig them up and they'll build them and then i'll try to get some video to support the idea and break it down and jazz it up with some elements and boom you got a breakdown and hopefully people will enjoy it does that stress you out or did it does it less now i mean i get stressed and we were actually talking about you know you and uh, you know my business partner Evan were talking for about an hour before we got ready with the cameras and everything, and you know I, I can't be involved in that conversation for some because I need like almost like complete silence for a while, especially with yeah. an interview that I really care about. You yeah. know, it, it does. How, how do you, if it does stress you? How do you deal with it? What do you do prior to going? We're live. Yeah, we're you live. know, live. We're not even. This yeah. is taped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. I always remind myself because, you know, as you're sitting down and you, you've, you've been there, you know this, you're, you're sitting down, right before you come on the air, things are really, can be really hectic, you know. There's shot sheets, you know, that have all the shots of the day that we're going to highlight. And those are getting thrown at you last minute. There's changes in the in the rundown, changes in the show. People are talking to you, sound people are checking in with you. There's all kinds of stuff. What are you coming on the air with? What are your ideas? And so it's very easy to get amped up or overstressed or nervous but I always remind myself right before I come on the air um, to have fun because if I have fun hopefully the audience is going to have fun if I'm relaxed and it's like you know I've done all the work I don't need to worry about what I'm going to say or how I'm going to say it you know typically I've sort of thought those things out they're somewhere in my head hopefully I'll be able to grab them as we're flying along uh, so just relax because if you relax and you've done the work, then you can listen. And if you listen, you're relaxed. It's only when you're thinking about what you're going to say that you start to get nervous because you worry about what you're going to say, how you're going to say it. If you just listen, it's all in your head, and it's like just react. It's like you then end up closer to having a conversation with the people around you. And, and, and they, when I first got in this business, they were like, yeah, we want to, as close as we can, emulate the camaraderie or the feeling of having a conversation in a living room about the golf and i'm like yeah in theory that sounds good but there are so many obstacles to that because everybody's amped up there's a lot going on tv moves fast if you make mistakes you know you, you make somebody else look bad and it's like you got to pay attention you got to do all these things and it's like the only way you can do all that is if you listen you got to prepare and listen and then get yourself in a frame of mind to 
to uh, have fun because that's what TV's about. I mean, people are sitting at home watching me in their underwear for crying out loud. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like we're not we're not we're not solving any huge human problems here. We're we're and golf is a big problem. <laughs> it's a big problem for for me and you, yeah. I'm sure. But uh, it's funny as you're talking, I'm <clears throat> I'm getting stressed about if whether I'm listening well enough. Or not. <laughs> it's true. I was like, am I listening right? <laughs> well, you know, I, I I've done it. I mean, I'm sure you've heard people do it. You're sitting on TV, and you if you listen, you'll hear people repeat what somebody just to the left or just to the right of them said. Interesting. And you'll hear them, and when you and you know like, when you hear that, you you know those people aren't listening. Because right. it's like they've got in their mind what they're going to say. And, you know, you, you just said, you know, and, and Tiger Woods last year at the Masters hit this shot. And then the person you go to the right, and they're like, yeah, you, if you remember Tiger Woods at last year at the Masters hit this shot. And it's like, yeah, he just said that. I just he said just, that. just said that. And you're like, <laughs> they're not listening. And, and you know, if you're listening, you're like, you know, as, as you just said, or, you know, great point, or I hadn't thought about that. And, and it ends up being much more conversational. Well, that's got to be kind of tough if in your head you've done your research and you know you're going to talk about this. Yes. Someone literally steals your lunch. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, that's... Yeah. Well, we're all competing for the same stuff, right? Right. I mean, you know, it's not that I don't look at the statistical analysis that gets thrown my way. I do as a baseline, but I don't use it. You know, I try not to use it because if you use it, you're going to sound like everybody else. And... You know, I, I want my own stuff. I want my own analysis. I want my own statistics. So I go do my own work, look up my own stuff, so that chances of somebody saying the same thing I want to say are not that great. Right. Because they're going to come at it, and that was, you know, that's what Live From's all about. I mean, David Duvall, is, he looks at golf in a lot different way than I do. Navalo looked at golf a lot different than I did. So typically, they're not going to say anything that I'm going to say. I'm not going to say anything they're going to say. Um, but they're going to make me think. And then we're going to disagree and, you know, we're going to argue. And those arguments typically, it doesn't, they don't happen often, but when they do, they come about organically and hopefully from the right place. Uh, we are in this part of the golf season now where uh, we're going to be watching probably, I'm assuming, your favorite tournament of the year coming up <laughs> over there in Georgia. And uh, I... I uh, I'm curious to know what it feels like to walk into your first Masters ever, 1999, yeah, and uh, hold the lead for the first day. Yeah, what on earth is that like? Uh, surreal, you know. You you as a golfer, um, you know, unless you're supremely talented, like Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson or Jack Nicklaus, most golfers are, you know, they're 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 hoping to get to that spot, but they're you know they're they're somewhere else in another area you know they're they're not going to get there i thought i was going to be the greatest player ever when i was a kid when i was in college but you know didn't get there so it took me a long time to get to the masters can i, can I interrupt you really quick yeah because uh that moment of you thought you were i the first thing i wondered was when did you realize that that wasn't going to happen because it's happened with me and obviously not with golf really but like you know i thought uh, I would be a really great photographer. And then I thought I'd be a great filmmaker, documentarian. And now here we are in a sport that I never wanted to play, <laughs> talking to a, a brilliant member of the media community. And I'm honored to be here, but I never would have expected it. Right. Like, I never planned those it. Tangents. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering, where was the, was there a moment where you were like, 
huh yeah. pivot or was or yeah yeah a good question uh it 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 washes over you slowly you know <laughs> <laughs> like grief <laughs> yeah like grief absolutely uh because you 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 come out on tour you know you look to dominate in golf you, you've got to be powerful you know you got to be really long and you've got to be pretty accurate you gotta you gotta have it all right and i you know, I was close to that in college, and I was, you know, close to being the best player in the nation. But as I came out on, on tour, you know, I, I looked around, and, you know, I wasn't the longest, you know. And, um, you know, slowly but surely you realize, you know, you get paired with a, a, a an, an ungodly talented player like Davis Love. I got, play, you know, I got paired with, you know, Greg Norman early on or – or Tiger Woods, and when he comes out, and you just think, you know, or I got Phil Mickelson or Ernie Els, and you just think, you know, I flat out cannot do that. You know, I got I got paired with Davis Love one year at the Waste Management Phoenix Open, where we'll all be here shortly. And the tenth hole is a dogleg right, and long before players regularly hit it 340 yards, he was the one person in golf that could hit those crazy shots. And the not, the tenth hole at Phoenix is a is a drive out. It's a pretty good drive out to the corner, and then you've got a wedge, nine iron, eight iron into the green, uh, and it's a tricky little drive. And I had the honor. I got up and hit my drive out there, and I really wasn't paying attention to what Davis was doing. I was just standing to the right of the tee box, and I hear this, you know, whoosh, and I hear this, whoosh, and it just goes right by my head, and I'm like Jesus. You know, and I look, and Davis Love, instead of being finished in an angle that told me he's going down the fairway, is finished in an angle that told me he went right over my head, which is cutting the dog leg. No one, never seen anybody do that. Now players do it regularly, but this, you know. And I look up at Davis, and I'm like, where, where are you going? And he goes, well, that should be on the green or in the greenside bunker. I'm like, good <laughs> God almighty, what are you doing? I go down there, and I've got eight iron in. He's in the greenside bunker. Blasts out to a foot. I couldn't stop my eight iron over the bunker where the hole was. Next hole is 11. It's almost 500 yards. I smoked a drive down the right center. Smoked it. Pins just over the front left bunker. Davis is miles in front of me. I hit a perfect six iron that landed right by the hole and went 40 feet past. He hit a sandwich that stopped a foot. I was like, I cannot beat him unless he has a bad week. Whoa. And I have a great week. Now, that doesn't mean there's not room to make a living. I made it a nice living for 15 years playing professional golf, but I was never going to beat Davis Love. He's in the Hall of Fame. I'm not. So, oh, fast forward, I make it to the Masters. Uh, much, much later than I thought I was going to ever make it to the Masters, <laughs> mind you. Uh, you were 31? Uh, no, I'd have been 29. 35, 35 when I made it to the Masters. So uh, That's but, crazy. Right. But... But you know, I mean, I'm I'm in the I'm a middle aged man by the time I make it to the Masters. I've spent my <laughs> not my entire life because I didn't come to golf till kind of late. But um, you know, I've spent my most of my adult life, all of my adult life, playing golf, thinking about it. Never you obsess about it. You, you know, when you play golf for a living, it's all consuming. You know, the tick tock of a professional golfer's life is a never ending fine tuning of your body, your clubs, your swing, your mind. Everything about it, it, it's the most selfish endeavor I could imagine. And it, and it never ends. You know, you don't go home and think, you know, I got an off-season. There's no off-season. You're working out, you're training, you're thinking about it, you're playing, you're working. There's no off-season in golf. 
So, you know, at 35, I finally make it to the Masters. And, yeah, I was playing well. I was a good player. Uh, you know, I was, you know, I I, I played that week. Augusta is notoriously cruel to inexperience. But a good friend of mine on tour was best friends with Jack Nicklaus. And Jack Nicklaus, who had won the Masters six times, sat down, took his yards book out, and told him exactly how to play every hole. Exactly. Wow. So this is, you know. This is like Michelangelo taking you to the Sistine Chapel. You know, it's like, oh, let me show you this little part I drew over here. And so Jack tells my buddy, Glenn Day, this stuff and where to hit it and what shot shape to come into every green. And so I'm like, Glenn, I'm dogging you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You and I are playing practice rounds. So I had, as far as I could imagine, the best playbook imaginable. <clears throat> to play Augusta National. So, this is like pre-analyst training, almost. Yes, yes. This is what you're doing here, almost. Yes, absolutely. And and I, you know, I had it all in my book, and I shot, uh, it wasn't like I shot any great low round. I shot 69, and, you know, it just ended up being, you know, tied for the low round, which is, look, great memorabilia from Augusta National. If you shoot the low score, they give you a, a crystal goblet with your name on it. Really? I made an eagle in the first round at the 13th hole. I hit a how long was the putt? Long iron about three feet away. Almost, what? Almost made it again. Back to your stat. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, uh, you know I was playing with the eventual winner uh, in '99 was Jose Maria Alfaro, and I was playing with him. And we get to 13, and I drove it around the corner, sort of hanging lie. He did. He was just behind me, and I hit a great little, you know, sort of cut two hybrid up there that landed on the green and almost went in and stopped right behind the hole and. He thinned his long iron, and it hit short of Ray's Creek. It's short of the creek and skipped over it up onto the fringe. <laughs> the luck, the winner's and, luck. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he makes the putt, and I make my putt, and we're walking off the green. I said, nice eagle. And he goes, no, 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 no. Mine was shit. Yours was good. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And he's a really good guy. And then, uh, you know, that was the first round. And then the next day, such a good guy. Um the next day he shot 66 and we drove it to the same spot on 11 and and the pin was sort of middle right and it's a hairy little shot i mean you you either fudge to the right which means if you miss it to the right you're you know down to the right and you're chipping up to the elevated green with sloping away to the water or you take on the water to try to get beneath the hole i mean they're both come with risk and i uh i hit a five iron I aimed just to the right side of the green. I hit a perfect shot, about 30 feet from the hole. Perfect. And I heard his caddy, this fellow's name was Brendan, as I recall, telling him it's a five iron. Um, oh, he said, it's not a five iron. It's a cut four iron. And he's, he's, you know, he's like, well, they just hit five iron. He's like, I know, but it's a cut four iron. And to tell a guy to hit a cut over the water, I mean, that's a... That's a bizarre request out of a caddy. And this is uh, 11, you're saying? This is number 11, second So day. he's he's going to take it out over the water. Right. And, and so, this is Friday, so the pin's like front right. No, it's sort of middle right. If okay. You, if you're looking down the fairway, the pin's sort of, you know where that bunker is. Yeah. He's got to go over the water if he's going to take that line, and, and the pin's right there in front of that bunker. And if he if he hits it straight, it's going it's going to hit the green and bounce off. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. he pulls it a hair, it's yeah. wet. I'm right? terrified right, right now. If he pulls it a hair, it's wet. And... So he, I'll never forget him jerking the club out of the bag with you know, and he goes, "We'll see if you're right." Oh. <laughs> you know, he just jerks his club out of the bag. He said, "We'll see if you're right." And then you know, Jose is you know one of the great iron players. He wasn't a great driver of the golf ball, but he was a phenomenal iron player. 
and the sound in that corner it echoes mm. it really does i mean it's this is not they're not dubbing that in on tv they they shots echo in those 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 pine trees so he hits this this foreign it just sizzles off his club you know and it just cleaves the air and and, and it goes up and it lands about two feet from the hole and stops and i was like you know it was a it, it was a, just a one of the greatest shots one of the greatest moments you'll ever see nobody knows about it. i was there right. i watched it and he shot 66 and then you know he got into a mano a mano with greg norman on the weekend and eventually prevailed. Um, you know, eleven. Like nobody goes near the green on eleven. Yeah, nobody gets near it. Yeah. And for a long time before I visited the you know property, I was like, man, all these guys just keep missing. Right. And I'm just like, why are they going front right, front right? And it's because on a Friday, why would you ever? Right. And Augusta's really all about that. It's it's like it lures you into. It looks beautiful, but it's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, the golf course is about taking risks and, and managing risks you know it's uh and it and it tempts you into to taking risks or doing things that you're not really comfortable doing with a really fine line of success and failure you know i you know i always say that the, you know the u.s open those golf courses typically are about attrition you know mm. it's about sooner or later you're <laughs> going to stumble and the dragon's going to eat you right okay? but at augusta you get to slay the dragon Okay, you get to take on these amazing shots, and somebody's going to take them on. And and the the great thing about that design is, <clears throat> it was designed to encourage players to take on risk. So that's the genius in the design, and and no shot illustrates that better than Phil Mickelson's second shot on the thirteenth hole, the final round in two thousand thirteen, or excuse me, two thousand ten. <clears throat> and that is what that design is about. So Phil's in the trees. He's on the pine straw. He's behind a tree. He's got a downhill lie, which is going to make his shots go to the left. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the pin is tucked right over the water in a little corner on the right. And the conversation with Bones and Bones clearly, it seems like wants to you know give him these options, tell him where he could go, but you can tell he's biased towards the layup. And Phil says something along the lines of, "Whoever's going to win this tournament is going to hit a great shot coming down the stretch," and he's like. It's going to be this shot. I got to hit a great shot at some point. The winner's got to hit a great shot. This is that moment. And I mean, you can't set the stage any better than that. You can't have a more beautiful. I mean, it's the most beautiful and arguably the best par five from a strategic standpoint in the world. And you've got the perhaps the greatest gambler the game has seen. Literally. Right? Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorically. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's, he's a fellow who, and if you heard him later explain the shot and what he was thinking on the David Faraday show, it was a, it was a great bite. You probably dig it up on YouTube, but he, he explains all that was going through his mind and how he managed that risk. And he also managed that risk and reduced that risk in his mind. And this is what great athletes do. He gave you some insight in that interview with David Faraday into the workings of how a golfer talks him into talks himself into a shot that is fraught with danger. And he hits the most beautiful shot uh, out of that pine straw, hits a draw around the corner to about five feet. Now, he missed the putt, but and people are like, well, he didn't make the putt. I'm like, no, no, no. What he did with that shot was, one, he didn't hit it in the water. Two, he didn't make par, but 
he, he avoided disaster with this miraculous shot, and then he went on to win. You know, he was the type of player that that golf course was designed for, um, at least in spirit. You know, Jack Nicklaus came along who, you know, hit it so good and managed wrist so well and was so good at long irons and hitting it high that, you know, he won more of them than anybody else. And, and, and that's what major championships are meant to be about. They're meant to be about who can hit it the highest, who can hit it the furthest, and who can hit it the straightest. Those are the three hardest things to do in golf. It's hard to hit the ball high. It's really hard to hit it long. And it's really, really hard to hit it straight. Those are the hardest things to do in golf. And if you can do them, and only a handful of people have been able to do them in the history of golf, you're going to win all the tournaments. Well, that's Tiger, that's Jack, um, and that's, you know, I mean, that's Watson and a few others. But uh, high and straight and long is, uh, is really hard to do. I, I love that you brought up the 2010 Masters for two reasons. One was that was my first Masters. Wow. I had gotten into golf five months prior, hit my first three wood. That was my first club I ever hit. And um, during that Masters, I was um, in the middle of, I, I didn't really have too much of a job at the time or too much of a living situation. I had a station wagon. <laughs> and um, Well, you know, there's plenty of room in a station wagon. <laughs> it, it's surprising. It, you have to crack the windows at night because it gets a bit steamy. But yeah. I was on the Robert Trent Jones Trail in Alabama. <laughs> and I would uh, watch the highlights at Olive Garden every night. Nice. And then I would... Um, Breadsticks are good. They're, they're incredible. Pretty they don't good stop salad. bringing them. No, they don't. You can just eat them all. It's like uh, <laughs> free-range balls. <laughs> but I, I remember watching this. I didn't really know who Phil Mickelson was. I didn't know who Augusta was. I didn't know who the master was. But I saw that shot. And mm -hmm. the crazy weird coincidence is that my brother and my father were right next to him. So they're in the commercial. Get out of here. They yeah. were there watching him. If you pause it, they're right there. In, no in, in a lot of the shots. And, um, and so it's a, that's a very special shot to me, actually, oh, yeah. because in some right. sense, that was my first golf shot that I watched. I'll be damned. And so it's cool to hear you talk about it. We're going to take a quick break. I want to basically talk about uh, uh, this for a while. You got I, it. I got a couple of great it. questions about this but, tournament. By the way, your first shot, that was the best shot of the decade. So. Good way to start. It's all downhill from there. <laughs> 2010, and we <laughs> that have, was it. Now we're in a new decade, so we're ready to re up. Uh, we'll be right back, everybody. Taylor made, folks. I got to tell you, the first golf clubs that ever went in my little old hands were Taylor made burner oversize. They had some crusty old grips that I redid myself at risk of my own fingertips with the razor, and I and I got high because there's an, I don't know if you've ever regripped your clubs, but you 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 become an an inhalant addict. Because you're putting like really noxious stuff. Then don't don't grip your own clubs unless you really want to. Anyway, mad respect. Give me a fist bump whenever I see you. Like, I, gri I grip my own clubs. I put the grips on them myself. I say, how much did you say? I mean, you could save money. You save money because I think you put them on. It's like twenty bucks each, and you and you buy the grips yourself. It's like eight bucks. By the way, regripping fourteen clubs. I mean, you might, that's like a lot. Go buy TaylorMades instead. They come with grips. My favorite TaylorMade edition. Now, obviously, the Sim Max I'm playing is a monster club. One of the many things Tiger Woods have an eye in common is playing the Sim. But also, I really I kind of love the wedges. The raw-faced wedges, MG. I both love the high toe in matte black. I also have a matte black shaft. I know you didn't ask, but I went ahead and told you. Anyway, TaylorMade, my favorite thing about TaylorMade, beyond the incredibly performing equipment, is the people that make this company up. 
the the band of the band of brothers down here, the band of sisters, the family in Carlsbad really, really gets behind what we do, and that means it's important for you to get behind what they do. So go support TaylorMade, everybody, and hit them straight, or just don't just just hit them with TaylorMades, though. Just get some. Just stop messing around with all the others. Hit them straight with TaylorMade, but just hit TaylorMade at least. I mean, if you're not, I mean, just just go. I mean, what are you doing? Just pause the pod. Go on TaylorMade. What's their website? I don't even. They don't even need a website. Just go find TaylorMade ASAP. There should be what? What I play? I play the okay. Studio is asking me to play. P, I play the P seven sixties, four through pitch. Then I've got the milled grind raw face fifty, fifty four, and fifty eight. And then I rock. I'm in between the Gapper and the Sim Hybrid right now. I play the two Gapper. Uh, I've got a steel shafted six and a half Project X in that one, as with all the irons. And then on the driver, I have the uh, Sim Max with a nine degree. I'm still working on getting my numbers on that. I don't really know. I got the ten and a half and the nine. We're gonna, gonna do a little experimentation. Maybe honestly, you know what? Whatever one I don't use, how about it's yours? How about that? We're gonna. I don't know how we're gonna manage this. Head over to the Instagram account. Get ready for the old giveaway of the uh, driver that I can't hit. <laughs> anyway, TaylorMade's the family, folks. Precision Pro, folks. I'm going to do an ad-libbed Precision Pro read. Here's the thing about Precision Pro. They're made by some great guys in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's got great design. And coming out soon, you're going to get a very special colorway of the NX9 Pro with slope. Is that right? That's it. I got I got a thumbs up in the studio here that that's the exact rangefinder. Not only do you get free battery replacement for life, but you get slope and you get laser. I mean, it is a laser, laser sharp accuracy, and you get I don't know. You just get to be part of something cool that I'm down with. So Precision Pro is great. Obviously, the family there in Cincinnati makes them good. We did an RGC there. If you haven't seen it, check out the video on the YouTube channel. We gave everybody a rangefinder. But stay tuned. Coming around April, we're going to be releasing a random golf club version of this rangefinder. It is the most beautiful rangefinder I've ever seen on planet Earth. And I, as you know, I haven't traveled any other planets yet. I've done a lot of countries and states and towns, continents, hemispheres. But I've never left the planet. And I was just talking to someone who said that that's on their bucket list. It's not on mine. I don't share that. But on this planet, the random golf club rangefinder will literally blow your mind, but it won't blow your wallet. The rangefinder for everyone, people. Enjoy it. Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason, and we have a couple of podcasts. If you you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy, and we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. All right, we are back. Uh, okay, so you've been to Augusta how many individual times? So, so one tournament would count for however many days you show up. Yeah, so right. six, five, seven days. Right. You played in it. Yeah. You've, I'm assuming, played it as a guest. No, never played it as a guest. No way. No, no. You've never I, had the. Rit- no, I never rit- played it prior to getting there. And then you know, it's funny. I missed a, about a three foot putt on the last hole uh, in '99, which would have I would have finished 11th if I'd made it. And they, that was the first year they went from top 24 get exempt to the next year to 16. So I missed the putt and I finished 18th. Funny thing is, is that in the USA Today, the next day, they were like, these are the players that get invited back based upon their finish. And they had me included in that list and everybody else who finished tied for 18th. Amongst them was a fellow by the name of Bill Glasson, 
who I had played with alongside Jose Maria Alathabo. Now, I knew it was inaccurate, but he didn't. So halfway through the next year, I mean, halfway through this year, you know, somewhere like, I don't know, October, somewhere in there, we're playing an event. And he was like, have you, I'm playing with Bill. And he says, so have you uh, made your arrangements for Augusta National? And I was like, excuse me? And he's like, yeah, you know, where are you renting a house? Because I had rented a couple of houses at Augusta, and we were, were talking about it. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, you know, for Augusta, you know, have you rented a house? And I was like, I, I'm, I'm not in Augusta. And he was like, yes, you are. You tied me. We tied for 18th. We're invited back. And I'm like, Bill, I don't know how to break this to you. I was like, but that was wrong information. USA Today is not a golf pub. We gotta... <laughs> I mean, they do a lot of good work. I love Christine yeah. Brennan's stories and so forth. But I was like, they got that one wrong. You're not in and I'm not in. He was like, he was like <laughs> crestfallen, you know. And he's an intimidating guy, you know. He's like, he's not a guy you want to piss off. I'm like, don't, hey, listen, don't don't shoot the messenger. Don't, don't kill me. But, you know. So, but I, you've never played it. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I've got friends of mine that are members, but I just haven't played it I, for whatever reason. It's bizarre to me. But I've been going there probably for the last 10 years, and I'm there for almost two weeks covering the Masters. Hundreds so. of times walking on the grounds. Yeah. And you, so the last time you actually had a club in your hands. 1999, 18th hole. It, I played and, that, you, and it was 18. Yeah. I played with uh, Craig Stadler on the last day, and it was. It was blowing a gale. I think the lowest score shot that day was 70, and I shot 72. And the last hole was dead downwind, and I smoked a drive around the corner, and I only had a sandwich to that front right pin. But I I landed it by the hole, and it just went all the way to the back of the green. And I lagged it down there about three feet. Sunday's and front left. It, typically it is, but this Sunday it was front right. Okay. In 99. And, and so I lagged it down there to about three feet, and, you know, as I was – you know, making a stroke. I mean, you know, gust of wind hits me. I almost fall over and I miss the putt. But shot at 72. You got what they referred to this year as you got gusted. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't. It, it wasn't no an actual term last year. I got <laughs> there. I think it, it was mo- known more by the colloquial term of getting screwed. And <laughs> in general, in general, right, right. it still works. By the way, I mean, it's, it works. It's interchangeable. Interchangeable. Gusted. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I, or I just, you know, I'm just terrible. You know, I missed this putt. I'm walking off the green, Craig Stadler says to me, he goes, uh, that was a really good round for two reasons. I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, one, it was blowing like hell out there. Two, you had to play with me. And, uh, you know, it's pretty funny. I mean, Craig's got his own show on Sirius. He's, he's a pretty funny guy. Um, I remember one time playing with Stadler at, at Riviera. And he had played with Corey Pavin through the first couple of rounds. And, you know, Corey couldn't hit the ball 245 yards, probably 250, whatever, if he smoked it. Probably not 250. And the eighth hole at Riviera, it's since been changed, but back then there was really only one way to go, and it was left, and there was a bunker down there, dogleg right, short little par four, beautiful hole. There's a bunker down there that's like 245. And you use that as an aiming bunker. You try to peel a cutoff there and get it way down there. And, in, and so Craig's telling me the story. He goes, you know, I played with Corey Pavin. And he gets up on 18, and he hits this drive, or on 8, and he goes, he hits this drive. He's going right at the bunker, and he starts, as soon as he hits it, he's like, cut, 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 cut. And he's like, this ball hits and rolls out, and he's 10 yards short of the bunker. You know, he's like telling me how short Corey is. I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. I mean, meanwhile, Corey's won there a few times, whatever. And we had started on 10. So by the time we get around to the 8th hole, you know, it was hours ago that he tells this story, and Stadler gets up there and he cold tops his tee shot. 
off of eight. No way. Now, the irony hits me immediately. But, you know, Stadler's a big, burly guy who's prone (laughs) to getting angry, you know? (laughs) But anyway, as he's settling in to his second shot. Which is where? 50 yards off of the tee in the rough. It's it's like it's like not even in the fairway. No, 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 they didn't get to the fairway, right? And and so as he said. Eight is the kind of double fairway? Yeah, it's a double fairway now. Okay. So as he's settling in, I said, hey, Craig. Tell me again where Corey hit his drive here. <laughs> <laughs> he looked up and, uh, you know, he uh, he said a few expletives that begin with the earlier letters of the alphabet, let's just say. <laughs> Fantastic letters. Got it. Wow. So, so okay, so <clears throat> there's so many great holes in the world. And you talked about 13 being potentially one of the greatest yeah. par fives ever conceived. Yeah. Um, and you talk a lot about the history of the game. When, when you look at Augusta as, um, you know, 85 years old, I believe. Well, 34, 34 it yeah. So 86. So, yeah. Um, what do you see as, is there a stand, can you, can you create in your mind a, the greatest hole at Augusta? Can you, can you, it doesn't stick out to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at least in my view, it's, it's 13, um, you know, uh, because it, one, it, it has all the elements of, of control and risk and aesthetics you got it all rolled into one. So you've, you've got to hit a very high-quality, technically perfect shot to get in the right spot. You've got to hit a, a right-to-left shot around the corner, flirting with disaster going left to get in the low side of that fairway, the lower left side of that fairway, so that you've got as level a lie possible to hit then a cut shot off a hook lie into a green that has water front and on the right, and very difficult pitch to the left. So you have to hit a real high-quality right-to-left shot. Most everybody, it's, it's a draw, obviously. And then a real high-quality high cut. And so you have to, if you don't pull that off, then you've got huge question marks. But even if you do, uh, the ability to hit a high cut off a hook lie is a very difficult thing. And that is, more than any other shot at Augusta National, what champions need to have, the ability to hit a cut shot off a hook lie because so many important shots at Augusta National are cut shots off hook lies. You're totally, they all are. Yeah. Two. Well, one, for example, I mean, right out of the gate, you drive it down the right side or anywhere in that fairway, you've got a hook lie. The ball's above right. your feet. Now, obviously, if you're a left-handed player, it's the reverse. I mean, but Almost every hole is sloped right to left. That's right. So you're, you're trying then to hit a high, soft cut into these greens off a hook lie. That's why... Upright swings, faders, kick ass at Augusta National. And, that, and that's why when you see a player come along like Rory, who's got all the talent in the world, and looks like he's inevitably going to win the Masters, for years I think he's changed a little bit. I think he's realized what he needs to do there from a strategic standpoint, technical standpoint. But for years he's got a swing that drops to the inside. Now yeah. if you have drop it to the inside and you're playing a draw, you're now swinging into the slope. Okay, so you're going to hit the slope earlier with the heel of your club, which is going to shut it down. Right. And you're going to hit pull hooks off of hook lies instead of high cuts. You're missing left of your target all day. And the ball's going to run. Right. So now you're going to be 40 feet left of the target and above the hole, which means you're putting defensively. If you can hit a high cut off a hook lie, you're more apt to be, one, closer to the hole, but two, you're more apt to be underneath the hole with a hook putt. And you make, on average, you make hook putts from, let's say, the 5 o'clock position, okay, if you, yeah. can, if you can sort of get a visual of a, of a sort of a clock face, 
and the hole's in the center. If you're in the 5 o'clock position, which is beneath the hole with a hook putt, you make that putt, on average, 25% more than you'll make a putt from the 9 o'clock So position. you're saying you want to be short right of the hole short in all right situations. Hole, which is where fades get you. But generally speaking, high, softer shots get you closer to the hole. This is fat. Why have I been trying? Why has everyone in golf instruction tried to tell me to play a draw? Yeah, of course. It's a common uh, right. Move. Well, because it's look hitting a draw is hard. You know, you got to come to the inside. You, you know, you got to close the face down, and closing the face down means that you've got more face rotation, and more face rotation generally means a wider dispersion rate. Okay. Right. So yeah, so the straighter hitters have a slower, generally speaking, they have a slower closure rate of the face. It it, it comes in without much deviation and it goes down the line longer but the players like the most inaccurate players Phil Mickelson by you know for example Patrick Reed they have a lot of face closure sorry who's that Patrick Reed <laughs> he's a <laughs> he, he's actually won the masters before. I'm not going to go there I'm not going there <laughs> uh, why did somebody tell you to cease and desist so, so it came up I'll be honest there, there were if you're listening and I do have a question that came up on social that we're going to be using in a little bit um, but uh, you know we always present the opportunity to um, ask questions of the guests here and we give away a nice hat so uh uh, it's a clean hat. It's never been worn. So um, <laughs> that's important. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's important. A, so so anyway. Uh, yeah. Moving on. Um, you're talking about Phil and yeah. his dispersion pattern. Yeah. So you know, that's that's you know, people will want ask you to hit a draw because it's it's hard for the better players to hit draws. It, it really is. A, a fade's an easier shot to hit, and I would argue that typically, if you hit a fade, and this is why mostly fades have dominated in the game. Fades go higher. Uh, to hit a fade, generally speaking, you have to have a more of an upright golf swing. And you have less face rotation. You're holding the face off. So all of those things allow you to hit it straighter and allow you to hit it closer to the hole, I'd argue. The quote uh, is 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 kind of comical. Uh, you know, you can talk to a fade, but a hook won't listen. You can talk to a slight, you know That's what I mean? Right. But, but yeah. like, that's Chi-Chi? Uh, I, I think Trevino's, Trevino. Uh, maybe Chi Chi, yeah. maybe. Um, um, I'm mixing, I'm, that was a terrible mistake. But uh, there is some truth in that. And what is the science? I mean, right, there is. Because like, I do seem well, these hooks just dive off to the left and a cut just can kind of sometimes. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, again, if you're trying to hit a draw, you've got face closure, which means the ball is generally going to go lower. So it's going to hit and roll, generally speaking, because it's going to have a lower trajectory. I mean, whether a ball is spinning left to right or right to left shouldn't have any effect on how far it goes. Okay? Right? The ball. Whoa. Really? No. It, if oh, it's, it's just it, because of the height, really. Yeah, it's the height, right? It's the height, uh. that, which, generally speaking, draws are lower because you're coming inside and you're closing the face down. You're de-lofting you, it. You're de-lofting it. Exactly. So, so there's you, not topspin is... No, there, there's no ball that's in the air that's got topspin. It can't be. Yeah, yeah, right. If a ball's in the air, it's... Got backspin. So, I'm so know. relieved that we cleared this up. Right. Because no it never made sense to me. Yeah, there's no such thing as top spin. It doesn't exist. What there is is a golf shot that hits with less spin. You know, uh, you know, a, a drive that's spinning a lot might be spinning 3,500 RPMs, and a drive that's not spinning much might have 1,750 RPMs. That one typically is going to roll more than the fly lower and, uh, and, and go through the air with less resistance. But... You know, there's always a rub. You want 
you know, this day and age, everybody talks about having a high launch, low spin, but Tiger Woods has never, ever defaulted to low spin. Tiger Woods plays with the spinniest golf ball. He plays with, he puts, he's consistently one of the highest spinning guys on tour because he's had power to burn and he realizes that he also wants control. I mean, Tiger was, from an intellectual standpoint, he was light years ahead of everybody on tour. And, you know, I mean, he still is. I mean, there's, there's, there's more to Tiger Woods than obscene talent and great technique. I mean, there's been play, scores of players come along who are more athletic than Tiger Woods and had equally good technique. Um, not scores with equally good technique, but lots that were better athletes than him. Potential, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't see any video of Tiger Woods throwing a football or playing <laughs> basketball or playing soccer. It's not like he's this great athlete. He has great athleticism. That's evident when he plays golf, but I'm not sure it translates to every other sport. What he has is great technique and a phenomenal mind. Yeah. Um, you, hear, you, can't, you can't see that. You hear about some golfers saying, well, you know, then I decided to use to do golf. You know, I had, I had yeah. a bunch of other athletic opportunities, and it was just golf was in the end. Let's go back to 99. Yeah. Um, you know, your first practice rounds on a Monday. That's your first time on the grounds, or did no, you go I as got a fan? There, I got there before. You know, I actually, maybe the – done a lot of dumb things in my life but maybe one of the dumbest things i've ever done was i was out there early on sunday i've got a good friend of mine that's uh that's playing there you know amateurs members could play there the weekend before uh, a friend of mine by the name of pat cow and pat's good friends with tom watson and he's good friends with well pretty a lot of those members and he said listen we're going out for a round tom watson and myself and the guy who's going to set the the whole locations uh for the week um, why don't you come play a practice round with us? And I had already arranged to have my grips changed and do a few other things. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm busy. I can't. So I turned down a practice round at Augusta National with Tom Watson on Sunday. Literally after, you know, within seconds, I was like, that's literally the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> Pat, Pat Cow, still a friend of mine. We're 21 years. We don't have dinner without him. You really turned down a practice <laughs> round with Tom Watson? I was like, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. I'm an idiot. Uh, so I did get there Sunday. I had work to do on my clubs, putzed around, and then I, you know, played practice rounds Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, I'm curious to know if you I, – I, I want to hear your sort of, uh, you know, like it's a, almost like close your eyes and paint me that picture of – because you walk out and you usually walk out right by the pro shop there uh, and, and your first time kind of seeing it all. W was that then or was or had you been – No, that was it. I had not, I had not been there. Before that, you know, you drive down Magnolia Lane the first time. Uh, I'm alone. I'm driving down Magnolia Lane, and I thought, you know, it's quiet. It's a, again, it's a surreal moment. You're uh, you're thinking to yourself, it took me a lifetime to get here. Uh, I'm going to enjoy this. Uh, I worked so hard for this. This is the pinnacle of the game of golf, a professional game of golf. I'm going to look around and, and take it all in. I remember, you know, just driving as slow as I could thinking about you know the first time I played golf where I played what I did all the you know it, it's a it's an emotional it's an emotional experience and then you know as you check in you know you get to know the members the members couldn't be any nicer they have you know banquets for first-time players um, again more evidence that I'm an idiot um, <laughs> when you when you register they they give you wait well, they don't give you you have to buy or did then now that I think the players get them free but at the time you had to buy every ticket that they give you okay so they would give you eight and they would give you 
badges for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then what they called weekly badges. But those badges were only good for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But it said weekly on it. So, you know, whatever it was, I've got a large family. I've got five brothers and sisters, mom and dad, lots of uncles, lots of people that helped me along the way. So, you know, here they all come. So, uh, I, you know, I, I, I count up and a lot all these thinking that the weekly badges were good for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So I give them to family members. They walk out there Monday, and, you know, and of course they're told by the Pinkerton guards, these are not good for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So now I've got all these people that have come over there on Monday, made trips. They're there. They're there for three days. They cannot go to the Masters Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> right? My brother owns a law firm and uh, got his own law firm in Dallas, so he's got several clients that he had brought, and he shows up, and none of them were working, right? None of this. So I go into the tournament office, and I'm like, look, I, I just want to know if I'm the dumbest person that's ever played in the Masters, you know? I was like, I, I, can I get some help here on these tickets? Because right. I've got all these people. I'm happy to pay for them. You know, they're not cheap. I mean, I remember they were like $2,000 to get oh, these yeah. tickets. You know, they're not. I mean, at face value, they're not cheap, right. let alone what you have to buy them if you can. So, you know, there was that debacle, which my dad and my brother, they all worked it out and figured it out and whatever. But there was that debacle. And then, you know, I remember my dad walking in there the very first day and he finds on the ground a weekly badge. And he walks up to a Pinkerton guard, and he's like, hey, listen, you know, somebody's going to want this. I just, just found this weekly badge. And the Pinkerton guard goes, what is this? And he was like, well, I found it in the parking lot. And he said somebody, you know, dropped it or whatever. And the Pinkerton guard looks at my dad, and he goes, so wait a minute. You you're, you found this? You're turning this in? And he was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I found it on the ground. I'm sure somebody lost it. He's like, I've never seen anybody turn in a badge that they found. He's like, hey, are you out of your mind? You, there's Pinkerton guards like, Telling my dad, he's like, "Do you know how much this thing's worth? If you want to sell it?" I was like, I was like, I don't know. I'm sure somebody's looking for it. He's like, Aww. he's like, and then you know, the first day, um, I'm there, you know, and you know, you walk to and from, and there's you know, scores and scores of kids. They all want your autograph, and my dad doesn't really know much about golf, right? He wasn't you know, a golfer. No, he didn't have time. You know, he was raising six kids and you know, putting us all through college and various things so, that we did. He just worked. Can we just segue? How did you yeah. get into golf? Uh, I was an avid horseman, did a lot of stupid things on horses, uh, and I wanted to be in the like, rodeo. Like, po oh, rodeo. Rodeo, like Western. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, Like ropes, you know, rope and, you know. you know. Is this a well-known Brandel Chambly fact? <laughs> I feel like I mean, it's not. Nah, not really. I don't Because I would so. say polo, okay. <laughs> no. Uh, ro no, no. Rodeo. I grew up in Texas, and in Texas you play football, which I did and wanted to play professional football, and, and you ride horses, and, and I wanted to be uh, in the rodeo. So, that, you know, we did stupid stuff on horses. You know, when I was 11, my brother and I set out on horseback with the idea of riding from Dallas to Lake Texoma. Now, that's 100 miles. And we'd camp out at night and, you know, put signs on the road. And my parents would drive out and meet us. And, you know, I can't imagine. I don't even let my my kids ride their bike to the store, you know. And, <laughs> and I'm, on my I'm on my damn horse, you know, in the country, riding across the country when I was 11, camping out, starting fires, eating chili. And what part of Texas? Is this West Texas? This is North Texas. Okay. You know, Dallas to, to Lake Texoma. And so, you know, I, I, you know, we chased cows all day long and roped them and, and, you know, cut, you know, cutting horse stuff and rode barrels and poles and, 
And I had a buddy of mine in high school who I took out to play golf or ride horses one day. And we just had a hell of a time. He had never ridden. And he said, well, listen, um, you got to come play golf with me. And he was a very good golfer, uh, you know, arguably the best player, best junior player in Texas he was. But I didn't know that. So we went out and played. And you're and it was 13, 13, 12. 13. Okay. And he, you know, he shot 69, as I recall, and I shot 169 or whatever. <laughs> and But I came home, and I said to my dad, now, I was I was a good athlete. You know, I ran track. I, you know, I, I, I pretty much did it all. And I was a good football player, although at about that age, people all of a sudden looked like Evan over here. Uh, who's, six seven Evan. Yeah, six seven Evan. Okay, I was I was five seven Brandel, <laughs> and uh, so so, uh, but I I was fast, you know, and and so I was always looking for a sport to to get after. And I remember I had one, I had one district in the in the hundred meters in the broad jump, and I went to our regionals, and the first guy up was five feet in the air where I landed and above where I landed. Right. And we were coming out of there and my dad put his arm around. Him. He's like, maybe we find you another sport. You know? <laughs> and so there was track gone. And, and now, you know, I go out to play golf and I come home and I'm like, I like this. I'm I could like, do this. this is, I'm, I said, I'm going to do this for a living. And he's like, you've played one round. You're going to do this for a living. Wow. I'm like, yeah, I'm all in. And he's wow. like, really? He goes, all right, well, you can't do both. If you want to play golf, we're going to have to sell the horses. And I'm like, all right. He's like, sell the horses. Let them loose. Let them loose. Sell the horses. <laughs> sell the horses. Uh, my horse's name was Checkbook, which I, uh, my, dad, my dad named the horse Checkbook because he said it cost him his whole damn checkbook. <laughs> uh, so Checkbook, I'm sorry. I don't know where you, you ended up. But uh, so Checkbook uh, got sold, and, and I dove into golf, and my dad was the best. You know, I mean, back then, you know, growing up playing golf in the Dallas area, gambling was a big part of the game sure you know i don't i don't know that it is now because it's it's ajga and it's 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 much more organized but you know there was a sense then that if you can't gamble that's how you that, i mean you need to learn to gamble that that's so in, so much a part that, of that was the primary social way yes. there there yes. wasn't like fun rounds no, it was no. like meet here at this time and there's 20 guys and someone's going to come out with some money right well and there was that and then there was in dallas there was it was a hotbed for gamblers, a hotbed. There's a there's a, a mythical, almost mythical figure. I mean, he was real, by the, a fellow by the name of Titanic Thompson. Have you ever heard of him? No, so Titanic, Titanic Thompson. So Titanic Thompson is maybe the greatest gambler that ever lived. And he would do things that were... So did you ever watch the movie Ten Cup? You know of the course, movie? So you know the, you know the bit where he goes into the bunker with a rake and a shovel yeah, and yeah. hits it out? All right, that came about... That's derived from Titanic Thompson. Titanic Thompson was such a good player, he could have easily made a fortune playing the tour, but he made more money gambling. And he was so good that nobody would take a bet with him, so he'd play with a bat or a rake or a <laughs> shovel or a, or a Coke can, or he'd play left-handed. And you've known him for 10 years, you've never seen him play left-handed. And then he'd shoot 68 left-handed. And he'd go into bars and he would literally put sugar cubes at one end and train the flies to all fly right to left in this bar. Okay, he'd do it for a week. Then he'd go into this bar, unbeknownst to somebody else, and he'd be in there, and they'd all know him, and they're like, "Well, we're not going to bet with you when anything." Because I just want to bet for the action. And they're like, "Well, I'm not going to bet with you." It's like, let's pick a random bet. You see that fly there? I bet you when it takes off, it flies to the left. And they're like, "Well, how the hell are you? I'll bet you that it could fly any direction." It's like, "All right, let's bet." 
and the fly would fly to the left. Amazing. And you know, he's in there training flies. He's just way ahead of everybody. Well, he used to he used to have this guy named Nate that traveled with him. And Nate was 70 years old. Um, and I had won the Dallas Men's Championship and the Dallas Boys Championship the same year. And I was out at this famous golf course in Dallas. How do you win both in the same year? Uh, well, I was good. What are you, 17, 18? 17. 17. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, so you play uh, in the boys, <laughs> and then you're like, let's move up? Uh, no, they just ran you know, one week, and then the next week was the men's, the Dallas Men's Championship, and then the Dallas Times-Herald Junior Championship, which was a match play event. Congrats. That's a big year. Yeah, thanks. They're <laughs> big trophies, too. They were, they were enormous trophies. Really? Yeah, they were like four-foot-high trophies. Uh, I don't know where the hell they're at, but anyway, um, so they're with checkbook somewhere. Yeah, that's right. They <laughs> are the dismantled. Uh, but, uh, so I'm out at Cedar Crest and this, this old man comes up to me and he says, uh, he says, I was with my buddies playing golf and he said, uh, I'd, I'd love to play golf with you, you know, in a match. And, and I said, I'd love to, you know, what do you have in mind? And he goes, well, you know, hundred dollars a hole. And let's just pick a couple clubs. Like, we'll just play a couple clubs. You know, you pick two clubs, and I'll play you with three clubs because I'm 78 years old. And he's like, I said, well, what clubs you got in mind? He goes, well, I'll play you with a seven iron, a wedge, and a putter. And you can pick any two clubs you want, and we'll play $100 a hole. So I said, This is terrifying. Right. So I said, All right. I said, Listen, I got a game here with my buddies. I can't bail on them. I said, But I'll come back here next Saturday and I'll play you. And he said, "All right, but you got to have nine hundred dollars to give to, to so that we can all keep it over here. I'll bring nine hundred. You bring nine hundred, and that's what we're going to play for." So now I'm seventeen. I go. That's home. a lot of money. That's a lot of money. So I go home and I tell my dad. I said, "Dad, I said, listen, this man, this seventy-eight-year-old man, wants to play me for nine hundred dollars, a hundred dollars a hole." In a match, I tell my dad the, the whole game or whatever. My dad doesn't know anything about golf. And he looks at me and he goes, he goes, all right. He goes, I'll stake you. He goes, but you're going to get your ass beat. And I was like, have you lost your mind? I was like, I'm the greatest player there is. Yeah. Like, nobody can beat me in this King town. King of Dallas. I mean, nobody can beat me, right? I was like, I'm so good. And he was like, listen, he goes, when I was in college at Texas Tech, he goes, I, made a, he goes, I probably paid for my tuition playing nine ball. And he said, I thought I was great. He said, some guy came in. He spotted me this. He spotted me that. He spotted me this. And he torched me. And he goes, I never forgot that. He said, if a guy walks up to you, tells you this game, that game, you're now in his world. And he's going to torch you. And I was like, not a chance, Dad. So I spent all week long practicing, trying to figure out which club I could hit the best. That was the most versatile. You know, it's like, so I, I decided on, back then they had these real hard golf balls called top flights, long before you started playing. But essentially, it was a rock, you know. And I could blade this eight iron, just hit it right in the middle of the ball, and blade it, and it would never get very high, and it'd roll 200, 220 yards. And I could put it in my back stance and punch it, hit it 160, and then I could chip it, and I could do anything with it. I could hit bunker shots with it. I was good to go. So I decided I'm going to hit an eight iron and a putter. So I go out there, I meet Nate, and we've got 300 people following us. You know, amazing. And they all are. It seems to me like they're pulling for Nate. Yeah. And uh, this match may have happened with someone else, too. Prior. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yes, exactly. And all I can tell you is with an eight iron and a putter. I shot 38 on the front nine. And this is a golf course where they held the U.S. Open. I'm sorry, the PGA. Um, and 
I mean, it's a hell of a track. I shot 38, which was three over. You're playing match play or stroke play? Match play. Well, yeah, match play. And and he beat me out of $300 because we were playing $100 a hole. So with a seven iron, a wedge, and a putter, he shot even par. Same tee box. Same tee box, yeah. Now, we got on the first tee, and his seven iron did, in fact, have a seven on the bottom. It did. There was a seven <laughs> on the bottom of it. But it was, had a driver shaft in it. It Ooh. had two iron loft, and he hit this thing forever. And he could flat out play. Never heard of the guy. <laughs> and it turns out he was Titanic Thompson's gambling buddy. They traveled together and fleeced, you know, cocky people from every single region. And, and you know, the guy, I played my ass off. I, I, I almost made every single putt. I did these crazy good things and shot three over par with an eight iron and a putter. And That's I, pretty impressive. It was a really good golf, right? And so... When we finished nine, he acted like, you know, he'd played his butt off and he got lucky and he was, you know, trying to talk me into playing another nine. And, you know, I now had only $600 left. And I was like, nope, I'm, I've seen enough. Uh, you're better than me at this game. Not, you know, not going to do it. Drove home. I walked in. My dad was like, so how did it go? I said, I lost 300 bucks. He goes, I told you you were going to get torched. That's good. I mean, in my head, in my head, that's not as bad as it could have been. It could have been a lot worse. I mean, I could have shot. Forty-four. Yeah, you know, you, you saved six hundred dollars. It I sounds like to me. Dollars. Yeah. Well, to to put a button on the uh, the Texas golf origin story, what is harder on your back, rodeo or golf? <laughs> I'd say rodeo. It is right. Yeah, okay. I can hardly watch rodeo when I watch it. I I mean, I'm like, oh god, these guys are gonna get stepped on. Yeah, it looks you serious. Know? I mean, it's a there's not many. 40-year-old people in the rodeo, you know. I think that's a very young man sport. So we have a question here from uh, Mateo Segovia, Winter Park uh, resident, and uh, message this morning when I put out the call saying that we're looking for some questions for our guest today, Brandel. Um, he says, how were the transitions from college and amateur to pro and pro to TV, and which was the hardest? Yeah, great question. Uh, from... Amateur golf to professional golf was uh, was a fun road, but it was humbling, and it was hard. Uh, but I always knew I was going to make it. You know, I, I just I just knew I was good enough to play the tour. Um, but along the way, you realize I was nowhere near as good a professional as I was an amateur, and that decay, let's call it, of my talent is the reason. And it informs my position now on TV. It's why I feel like when I'm talking, people love to say that I, you know, I'm critical of players. I, I feel the opposite personally. I feel like I'm, I'm in their corner, and I'm like an old man sitting on a porch saying, "Don't make these mistakes." Mm. You know, uh, the transition from golf to TV was complicated because it came about because of some family tragedies. You know, um, you know, I lost a child. Um, and I no longer could be out playing the tour. I just, my heart wasn't into it. I wanted to be home. Uh, my oldest child, you know, he, you know, he said to me once, um, when I asked him if he wanted to go play golf, he said, no. And I said, well, why not? And he goes, you know, golf takes you away from me. You know, he's like, why would I want to play golf? You know, you know, he, he saw, you know, the sacrifice of the game and, you know, if I was a, when I was a kid taking up the game, if my dad had said to me, hey, listen, are you sure you want this to be your life's pursuit? Because if you're really good at it, it's going to take you away from your family. It's going to take you away from your friends. You're going to live life on the road. Um, 
you know, just be aware of that. I'm not sure I would have gone into golf. No, it's given me a great life. I have a fabulous life. I've, you know, I've loved every minute of, of competing, but being away from my family, my kids, not being able to coach soccer or football or be there every night for dinner, I'm not sure I'd do it over again like that. You know, I'd, I, might, I might take another path. Um, so given the family tragedy and, and the way I felt about golf, I didn't quit because I was playing bad. I didn't quit because I was injured. I just wanted another avenue in my life. You know, all I had ever done was play golf, and golf is a very selfish endeavor. It's you and you alone. And, you know, I was looking for something else that would allow me to be home more and when I was home to be even more present because golf, it, it, it's hard to be present. You're all consumed by the game. And TV gave me that ability, you know, gave me that opportunity. Um, but TV was, you know, getting into TV was, was, was difficult. I wasn't very good at it, you know. My first year I was awful. Uh, you know, I was, I was absolutely terrible. I, I didn't really know how to do the job. You know, you, you spend the first year trying to be somebody else, try to sound like somebody else, you know, whoever your heroes are in commentating or broadcasting. You want to sound like them. You want to be like them. You want to. You want to, you know, you want to say the right thing. You know, you want to make everybody happy. And, and um, you know, it wasn't until, you know, four, five, six years later down the road that you figure out how to do the job. And, you know, normally when you suck at something that bad, you don't get a chance to come back and do it the next year. But for whatever reason, they invited me back. And um, I remember Tariko telling me, you know, the first year I was in TV, look, man, it, it takes about 10 years to get good at this. Wow. And, and. You know, I mean, he made TV look so easy, you know. But when you work next to or got to watch Tarico, you realize that he has amazing amounts of information that at his – he's very organized, very organized. And, I mean, he has other intangibles that make him extraordinary at what he does. But, one, he's very nice. Uh, he's, he's comfortable on the camera. And he's not trying to be anybody else but himself. And it just took me a while to find that voice and find a way to prepare and do the job the way I wanted to. Uh, and it was, it was a, I would say, equally difficult transition from golf to TV as it was from amateur golf to professional golf. There were some humbling experiences along the way. And I ultimately, the same thing that allowed me to play professional golf allowed me to have some semblance of, of success in TV, which was be yourself. Hmm. You know, which sounds ridiculous. Who else could you be? But... If you're on TV and you're trying to be somebody else, you, you know, or, or trying to sound perfect or scripting things and trying to spit them out, you know, I, I remember my first year, you know, I was doing live golf, the Open Championship 2003, and, you know, I had written all these things down that I thought were worthy of TV, you know, and memorized them and then spit one of them out on TV. And I thought it was perfect, you know. And the next week I got ripped in a magazine for that. And they include this quote. And the, and the guy said, you know, this sounded so scripted. And I was, Interesting. Like, I was like, man, that is a good, that is a good critic right there. Because, good catch. Because he nailed that. And I was scripted. And I was like, you know, it's like, Jesus, you know. I mean, I, I had read about, you know, all the legal pads and the notes that Jim McKay would use. And he, but you know, that's years and years and years of practice of, of making it sound more colloquial and conversational. And it took me a while, you know, and, and somewhere along the line, I, 
I, you know, I, I came to my own style, my own ideas, the own way I do things. And, uh, and I've, you know, I've, I've developed a comfort. I enjoy it. It is a lot like competing. You know, every show um, has a element of, of, you know, the unknown. You don't know how they're going to come out. You don't know what's going to come out of your mouth. You know, um, you know, the, you've got to hit a time frame within a show. You know, you got to, you've only got, you know, 43 seconds to do this breakdown, and you got to listen to somebody else, and you got to say just the right words to get it started, and then you got to have a nice middle, and you got to have a nice close. And if you've got to start a middle and a close, you don't need anything else. You just got that in your mind, and you go. And when you nail it, and you say it just right, and you finish just on time, and then you turn and you feed into somebody else, it's like it's the same feeling you get with a great golf shot. You know, it's like I, I couldn't have done that any better. Golf, though, is different than than TV because golf is a purely objective sport. You shoot 65, nobody can tell you you play like crap. Right. TV is inherently a very insecure world because it's purely subjective. I mean, not purely. There is some objectivity. Well, there's, there's no score. There's no there's binary. No there's no mathematical way to say right. success. Right. You finish a show, someone could say, you are awesome. And someone right next to me would say, I thought you sucked. Yeah. You know? and, and, and I was like, I'm not going to live that way. I was like, I'm going to come up with my own criteria for success and that's how I'm going to judge each show and it's like prepare as hard as I can what do I need to know I need to know the players I need to know the course I need to know the history it takes a lot of work and then when I go on the air I'm going to have fun at the end of a show if I've done my job done my preparation and I've had fun that's a good show and put it to bed and I'm not going to go home and watch it on TV I'm not going to listen to it I'm not going to care what other people say about it good bad or indifferent um, you know, it's nice to get compliments, sure. But I've always said, you know, if, if you believe the hype, it won't help you. If you believe the criticism, it won't help you. There's an element of truth in both of them. But you ought to be able to be complimented and offended and, and react the same. It should not have any bearing on how you live your life. And that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the way I try to live my life. It's not always that easy, but, but you know, that's... That's the way I, I mean, that's, that's, that's the philosophy that I just carry around with me. That's so interesting to hear you say that. Uh, I just saw a recent, uh, well, first of all, you're making me think about social media a little bit. And then when you said, don't believe the hype, don't believe the critic, uh, it reminded me of uh, Gary Vaynerchuk posted something recently that was like, it is literally irrelevant what people say about what I do. And I not totally sure my final thoughts on this but the idea that he was going on to say how he does it for himself mm -hmm. he does it because he loves the feet that he gets an experience of satisfaction uh, upon creating things and you know i can tell you do too whether it's the good question that brought us here whether it's the amateur competition the professional competition or the you know uh covering it for viewers um you know, I, I think it's interesting because even, too, talking about being on TV, I, I'm trying to remember the word you used. It, it wasn't insecurity, but I think it was along those lines of, you know, you're putting yourself out there. Right. And, um, you know, not being good at it at first, from your perspective, I'm sure is not, you know, accurate from other people. I'm sure some people were like, no, he's, you know, we like your point of view. Obviously, you were invited back. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, like I kind of look at the world now media social media in particular it's like you know it's, it's hard to kind of find that um it, there's there's so many voices out there and it's and it's hard for a lot of young people who are yeah. coming into wanting a job on camera 
we get it a lot, you know, like, Oh, I'd love to have your job and da da da. What can I do? And, you know, I've probably said it before, but similar to you, I'm sure you've asked a lot of people for advice. We were at waste management my first year there. And I said to Chris Berman, I've been tasked with hosting a golf show. I don't know how to do it. What, what should I do? And he was like, well, you have to be interested or else no one else will. And, and you said the same thing just now, you know, that, so that kind of reality about it all, I guess I don't really have a question. I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, the, the state of, you know, we all live online. Yeah. So much. Right. And, you know, uh, and for a lot of people who are in the snow, that's a lot of their golf. Right. You know, for a lot of people, you are golf. Have you, have you gotten that? You know, what's it like yeah. when Randall goes to a golf course and you, and you, and you take the online and you take the broadcast. Yeah. And then it meets. Yeah. Well, in a pro shop and someone says, I know you. Yeah. Well, golf is a, is a small family. You know, there's not that many people in the, in the world of golf really. And I've, I, I maintain, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm, missing the the boat here on uh, on other sports but i maintain that they've got the the best fans you know they're you know and if you're if you have any sort of notoriety in golf it's only very few people that know you it's just golfers and they're the nicest people in the world and they just want to play golf or have a drink or go to dinner with you so it's not like you you know i mean you're rory mcelroy tiger woods i'm sure you get you know mauled wherever you go but if you're Brant Snedeker, you know, and it's, look, he's won nine times. He's a star, but most people, he can go to Italy and nobody's going to know who he is. He can go wherever, he, yeah, nobody's going to know who he is. So he, it's not yeah, like celebrity. we got to do a test. we got to pick you and Brant to Italy and see how it goes. <laughs> Brant and Brandel's trip to Italy. <laughs> I mean, nobody, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is there's not that many people unless they're golf nuts know who, who I am. Uh, but but if I you would make, say more people know who you are than Colin Morikawa, um, I would say more well, than most people on top 100 right now. Yeah, but I mean only because I you know I'm I have a I'm on a show that you're on TV, so your face is on TV, so they will recognize you. But golf is uh, is a is a wonderful family. Does um, that make it hard? You 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 love golf. You tried it when you were 17, and you're like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Does does that? make does the does the public nature of your life in golf does that make it hard to go to a golf course and just play golf no not at all you know again there's no part of it that's my hard. wife will say does it ever bother i'm like no not at all these are the nicest people in the world and i'm you know i i enjoy people i enjoy their stories most of the time when you meet people they have a great story to tell you know and and i'm i'm curious i enjoy people i they want to ask questions of me but i i try to turn the tables and ask more questions of them and you know when i play in pro-ams people can have the edge in terms of conversation and that they know more about you just because you're on tv but i try to find out who i'm playing with and then go online and learn as much about them as i can so that i can ask better questions of them you uh this morning we we showed up at the um, uh, golf channel headquarters or golf headquarters and, um, you know, with my crew, we introduced you and our, our PA, you didn't hear their name and you said, I'm sorry, what is it? I didn't hear that. Tell me your name. And I, I, I watched that happen and I was like, it's a Saturday morning. It's 6:45 AM. And you wanted to make sure that you got their name correct. That was, that was one thing. The second thing is the first time we met was waste management, uh, golf, golf channel set. And you did something that 
you know, um, really was an indelible moment in my life, professionally and personally. And you came up to me and said hello. And that's something that uh, I don't see a lot of. And whether, then this doesn't really matter whether you know someone's work or not. And and indeed, you were you were like, oh, I see the waste management commercials and whatever. They're great, they're yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. But it it meant a lot to me because, like I said, whether whether or not it was about work or or you know seeing me as a colleague or anything like that, um, it was more about a kind of equality and inclusivity that uh, you know maybe I'm wrong. But on the outside of golf, you don't think that that's what golf is about. You yeah, know what I mean? Right. Once you're yeah, inside golf, you, you yeah, might say right. that's not the case. But right. but it's definitely not known yeah. for like, yeah, everybody. Right. Gets, it's not right. like soccer. Right. Where everybody shows up and it's just like, <laughs> team. You know what I mean? Like you said, golf is a right. very selfish sport. You know, what is – you've seen all different sides of it. Yeah. You've traveled the world. you played in the Open at St. Andrews. you played at Masters. you played you – know, you've been on TV. You've walked into places. People say, I know that guy. When did was it always like that for you? Uh, well, you know, the minute you get on TV, obviously you have a, a much greater presence than certainly I did as a player. Um, but I enjoy people. I um, I enjoy their stories. You know, I, I mean, I, maybe I got it from my father. Who you know, if my father were here by the end of the day, you guys would all have his number. He'd have your numbers, and he'd know your life story. He'd know your life story. He'd know your life story, and because he's generally interested in people and. My dad would invite everybody in the neighborhood to the house and, you know, from preachers to salesmen to engineers to doctors, and they'd all be at the house. And my dad would invite them there, and he'd buy all the drinks and all the food, and he just wanted to argue with them, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know. And about what? About anything, you know? <laughs> Politics, religion, the hard stuff, you know? What and, was your dad's profession? Uh, he built homes. Okay. You know, and... Like like a like like in a, a corporate setting or yeah, like a corporate setting. Okay. You know, he he had a company and he uh, he he built homes and did home improvement and uh, you know he made a, he made a pretty good living. You know, I'm sure there were years that he didn't make a great living, but I never knew it. You know, he uh, you know he as long as we were doing what we were meant to do, which was you know make good grades and work hard and you know be respectful. Um, you know, I you know we got a car when we graduated from high school and, and we got to do things, you know, you know, on the weekend and whatever. But, um, you know, and I, he was a great parent, you know, I had a great mom and a great dad. I was lucky in that regard, but it gave me a great example of, uh, of, of the love of people, you know, he just enjoyed people and, and I do, you know, I, you know, people want to talk to me about golf. I just, I just played, you know, a couple of weeks ago with these these guys who were you know, they were very interesting to me uh, I had looked them up I knew I was gonna play with them I'd never met them and I couldn't wait to talk to them about their 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 story how they got into business and and you know they wanted to talk to me about golf all day and I was like listen I'll, I'll answer all your golf questions but the back of nine I want to ask you business questions and not because i want to gain from it so i want to know your story yeah i just enjoy people and uh you know actually i can agree like the the thing i hate uh, uh, hate's a strong word y you you're i i don't i don't like being asked questions actually yeah. i don't know why yeah. i i'm much more comfortable asking, asking you, you questions. questions yeah right and it's funny that that's my life has been engineered around that simple idea of 
you know, and, and it's actually now I'm realizing it's kind of strange. Like we have all these shows where we go around the world and I really don't tell you that much about me. Yeah. Right. I'll tell you about somebody else all day long. Right. That's a strange thing. Yeah. Well, I know. I think it's a humble thing. I mean, yeah, I mean, most, most people, I do think of myself as very humble. So yeah. Like... I mean, most people, <laughs> that's a paradox, you know, I think Jordan Spieth said that once in a meeting, they were asking him about his humility and he, would he comment on it? He said, well, if I talk to you about my humility, that's not really exhibiting humility, is it? You know. Wow. And I thought that's a great. That's that, a that, that's a sharp guy. That's razor yeah, for that age. Razor. Yeah, yeah, he was early twenties. He's a sharp guy. Um, but you know, I mean, that's that's it. If uh, you know, we meet people who are like, you know, I watch you. I mean, mostly they're complimentary, in spite of the vitriol that pervades on social media. When you actually meet these people, rarely, rarely are they as as rude as they as they appear to be or are on on social media twitter twitter is like hot sauce it just is it's unnecessary i'm allergic to it and uh things are pretty good without it see i love hot sauce i love hot sauce i, I can't live without it I, I carry it in my bag here i put it everywhere but uh um, does, does it but i mean your your twitter life is intense it's yeah, like if, you re- I mean- if you read my Twitter feed, you'd want to slit your wrists. I mean, it's uh, uh, I get a lot of you know, you you idiot, you you suck, you're the worst, or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. I mean, um, I mean, I block most of those people. I do because I look at Twitter as, you know, I, I go to Twitter mostly for information, but sometimes for entertainment, obviously. Um, but I look at it as a party at my house. You know, it's my Twitter feed. Okay, it's not yours. It's mine. Yeah, it's, is, it's your name. It's my in case name. They were it's, my, it's my Twitter feed, and it's it's like I've invited these guests into my house, and you can come and you can even argue with me. But if you start breaking the dishes, you got to go. Okay, and, and or maybe you can start charging them. And uh, well, <laughs> and, and people get mad at me. You know, occasionally they'll message Bailey and say, "Would you, would, you, would your husband please unblock me?" I'm like, Bailey, go. Would you unblock so and so? I'm like, Bailey, I promise you, if I block that person. They were a complete asshole. Wait, have you have and, you blocked me? No, but I can't. I, I I don't know. Probably not. But I can I can tell you this that I have met. I went to take a lesson last year from uh, a chipping lesson from James Ridyard. Okay. And and uh, he he met me. I had seen his work with Francesco Molinari, and it was awesome. I was like, he transferred Molinari from a average chipper to a great chipper. I was like, you know. That the proof's in the pudding, right? So I call him, and he says, he's not coming to the States. And I said, no worries. I'm going to fly to London, get a car, I'm going to come see you. Commitment. So, so I do. It's like, I want to get to the bottom of this. I want to know how he changed Molinari's game. So he agrees to meet me, and we go out, and we have a lovely day, and we talk, and I hit some chips, and I, 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 I learn a lot. And I leave there, and I'm like, I'm like scrolling through my Twitter feed trying to find him. I'm like, I wonder why I can't find him. And I go to his, and I've blocked him. And, I, and I'm like, and I'm like, I wonder why I blocked him. Now, there's no telling. Like I said, chances are they've been an asshole. But chance, it's not that they. I, I doubt he was an asshole. He's a sharp guy. He could but, be asshole but, adjacent. But I'm sure he was pretty uh, vitriolic. Let's say, yeah. um, in 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 arguing a point against something I had said. And and look, it's not that I say things that are not. Um, easily attacked right i mean i've finished shows and i thought i don't even agree with half the shit i just said <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like <laughs> that's, that is 
That's it. That's I mean, we're done. That's all I need right there. <laughs> and I'll be like, I go back home. I'm thinking about it. I'm like, you know, hey, listen, I think you constantly are changing your opinion. If you're not changing your opinion, you're not thinking. You know, I get up in the morning. I put, put things out. I'm like, all right, what's this telling me? And I'm like, God dang, I, I missed that. Yeah. I got that wrong. You know, I got that wrong. So I've changed my opinion. And, you know, you change your opinion. People are like, you didn't say that last week. I'm like, right. Listen, I'm more informed this week. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. was wrong. Yeah, that you was know? a week ago. Believe it or not, it yeah. happens. Yeah, we're older now. TV, <laughs> it's like, you want me to wear the same coat I was wearing when I was a kid? Yeah. I got a different coat. You it's, know, I grew up. If you're not willing to be a hypocrite or a, or a more importantly wrong, then yeah. you should just stop talking. Right. Yeah, I mean, like, you, know, you got a crystal ball? I don't have a crystal ball. People love yeah. to attack me that I said I thought Tiger Woods was done. You know, he's never, I'm like, Listen, first of all, I do not have a crystal ball. Second of all, I've never seen anybody come back from all the things he came back yeah. from. No one has. No, no one has. No one. You may never ever again. I said, didn't see that coming, but I always said, if anybody could do it, he would. I always would add that caveat because, you know, and I'd That's always a good say. safety hatch. And I'd always say, exactly. <laughs> and I'd always say, I hope I'm wrong. Right. And and I was wrong. And guess what? So was he because he actually leaned over at a master's dinner to the people sitting there and he said, I'm done. I'm done. He said, I'm done. He thought he was done. So oh, I got it wrong. He got it wrong. He wasn't done. Wow. I'm happy to be wrong. You know, I mean, look, we're given an informed opinion, and and we're guessing which way the wind's going to blow tomorrow, and sometimes, you know, you get it wrong. Uh, but you're right. You can't be afraid to get it wrong. Um but so you, with Ridger, did you ever figure out the block? Did you unblock? Well, him? you know, look, I follow him, and I, you go, I, okay. I, I, I can surmise why I would have because he's he's cheeky, you know, cheeky. He's cheeky, and in 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 he's 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 pugilistic a little bit. Yeah, and and you know, it's not so much if you have somebody who's pugilistic, they invite more pugilism, and the next thing you know, you go to your Twitter feed, and it's you know, it, it gets profane yeah and i i block profane people yeah and and not only do i block them if you know their followers will start you know then they come and you yeah. end up having to block them because they're small, profane and it's like battle. listen i'll argue with you yeah oh i'm happy to argue i love to argue there's hardly anything yeah. i love to do more it's, than argue. it's familiar to you in, I love in it. your in I, your i love it family but let's be civil about it yeah you can you can you can tear my arguments apart just get after it and uh, and I'll and I'll get out. Of it. I, I was at a teaching summit not long ago, and this fellow named Scott Fawcett, who's a really bright guy, he he does this. Uh, he, he puts together this thing called Decade, which informs a lot of tour players' stats and strategies or whatever, and it's very good stuff. But I had blocked him on Twitter, and he asked me if I'd unblock him. And the more I talked to him, the more I realized, look, I and he sled to me. He goes, look, I was I was a prick, you know. I I'm sorry about that. He's like, you know let's 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 debate he goes I'd, I'd love to have these conversations with you and look i unblocked him and i go on twitter and i'm like this guy is really smart he's really good and is he combative yeah he is but i i think he will be a little more respectful when he disagrees with me and i'm certainly when i disagree with him although it's hard to be dis, it's hard to disagree with much he says because it's so well researched so you know, again, I've, I've I've been a little quick with the block button, uh, and and QTB and, and quick and, to block, right? Quick to block. <laughs> you know, I don't have a lot of patience for uh, for assholes. Uh, some non golf talk. You know, uh, what what do you what do you really love? And and it can be golf, and it can be yeah. golf related. But but what do nah. you 
Yeah. Be really long. I love uh, reading. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm a serial reader. At any one time, I'll be reading five different books. Novels? No. No. I mean, I'll read the occasional novel. Chicken Soup for the Soul? No. Don't. No, I'm not. I'm not averse to self-help books, but you know, I, you know, I'm reading. You know, I, you know, on my desk at home, I have uh, um, a conservative uh, George Will's newest book um, uh, on conservatism and how the country is differing from the founding fathers' ideas. Just gonna um, fast forward that. Whatever else you want to do, not politics. Yeah, no, I love politics. Yeah, and I study politics, and uh, you know, I'm. I also have. Uh, there's a fellow by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn that wrote a book called Gulag Archipelago, that I'm always reading. That book. I just finished a book, um, Stephen Kotkin's book on Stalin, first volume, and I just finished Roy Jenkins' book Churchill. All those books wow. are at various places in my house, and I, you know, read them. Put them on the shelves. Go buy others. Put them there, and I'm just so. My wife would tell you this: it, like if 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 I'm off, I'll get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, I'll get a book, and I won't stop reading until midnight. Whoa! And you know she will. What time she, are you waking up? Five thirty in the morning. Wow! And so she she would be like she would get yeah she never gets mad at me. We don't squabble, but she would tease me. She's like, "Could you take me for a bike ride?" Could you play nine holes of golf? With me? <laughs> she's like, you know, because if left alone, this is one of the reasons I play golf now is because she pesters me into playing golf. She's like, you know, if, if you just leave me alone, I'm, I'm basically a dork. You know, I just sit at home and read and drink coffee. You guys are yeah. a great golf couple. You got yeah. you got a lot of golf. She's a hoot. My wife loves golf. And she's more quite than good. I do. She's a good player. She said she almost beat you. She did uh, twice now. Uh, on our honeymoon, we were playing in Hawaii. And on the last hole, she hit this great flop over a bunker, and and uh, she had about ten feet. I had a rent set, okay. I didn't take my clubs, a rent set, and it, but I hit two drives out of play. I mean, I'm a good driver. I don't generally hit them out of play, but I hit two drives out of play. I wasn't playing particularly well. Don't really know what I shot. High seven. She did. Right. So on the last <laughs> hole, on the last hole, I'm in the cart. She's got this ten footer, lips out. She comes back in. I'm like. Good plan, though. Good putt. And she was like, if I'd have made that, I'd have tied you. And I was like, holy cow, really? <laughs> she was like, it was for 77. And then last year, again in Hawaii, we're on like we're on the 16th hole. And she was playing really well. And I said, you know, I was like, you are, you're playing great today. And she goes, you're only beating me by one. And I was like, holy cow. I was, I was eating par. She was one over. I was like, get going. She made a 10 on the next hole, but, but the next hole is an easy You hole. got in her head. <laughs> you Craig Stadlered her. <laughs> so, the, you know, another time we were playing, she goes, I don't even want to tell you, um, you know, I don't want to jinx it or whatever. I was like, what do you mean? She was like, ah, oh, you know, something good's about to happen. And I'm like, what? And, and, and I figured it out. If she went par par, she shoots 77, which on our home course is a pretty tough course. Yeah. So I could tell she was getting all nervous. So I thought, well, I'm just going to, you know. I'm gonna I'm gonna get in her head a little bit. So you know she knocks it on the green on 17. And I'm like, here comes Mr. Three Wiggle. You know I see it coming right here. You know, and I'm like, no way. I was like, this is you're gonna three Miss Three Wiggle. So she makes it. You know, so she's like in your face. We get up on the green or whatever or the next hole, and I'm like, God, you know, there's a there's a tons of bunkers out there. I mean, you're gonna hit which oh one are you gonna hit it in? Goodness. She finds a fairway, and I'm like, here comes Chunky Tuna right here. Here he comes. <laughs> Here comes Chucky Tuna. So, Are you sure you're not Titanic? Uh, and so, so, so she hits this beautiful little punch under this back tier, which she'd have never hit if I hadn't been razzing her. 
And then I'm like, you know, here comes Mr. Three Wiggle again. You know, you're going to ruin the whole deal. She makes it. She goes, birdie, birdie. I'm like, no way you birdie, birdie. You go, birdie, birdie, if I hadn't been razzing you. Um, but she's she's a hoot. You, if, you know my wife. She's yeah. Uh, yeah, she was on the show. She's a lot of fun. She uh, really is. You know, uh, uh, I, I swear people invite her, me to play just so that they can meet her and hang out with her. She's a lot more fun than me. Um, we, you know, it's funny you're talking about playing as a couple. Alex and I, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> We, we, we started playing golf together. That, that's kind of how we met. And um, when I first, without getting too personal, you know, a, a memorable moment for me in the beginning of knowing her was, um, you know, we're in the middle of Fairway and Troon after the Waste Management. And um, she says, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of in the middle of Fairway. I, I don't remember why. It was like we weren't going to finish anyway. The sun was setting. And it was so beautiful. And... Um, our balls were in the fairway and she, she kicked him into the bunker and said, bunker challenge. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, this is so fun. And then, and it really, uh, like enveloped the experience of play. Yeah. Uh, right. you know, and in the golf course became more, more of like a, uh, a playground rather right. than a problem. Yeah. Right. And, um, and then we sort of traveled the world and we would play best. matches everywhere and then uh, I decided I'm not going to play matches against her anymore. She's it's it's her consistency is she's uh, good is yeah. is annoying. Yeah, it's it's really a, it good. gets in my head. I mean, she hits 20 fairways in one round, and I didn't know that there were 20. I didn't know you could do that. If there's a split fairway, she hits both of them. <laughs> it's tragic. This is a talented woman. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but but also you know we're both very competitive. Uh, and so it, it's, uh, you know, that's I'm funny. an entertainer. Yeah. I was right. never claimed to be good at <laughs> uh, achieving physical, but it's a funny, uh, it's, it's great. You know, we still have yet to play golf together. The four of us. I'm looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah. That'll be fun. Next time. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I'm it. not going to play girls versus boys. It's not going to happen. <laughs> um, so, so what, uh, what, um, what, uh, what do you really admire in, in someone? Uh, hard work. Um, you know, uh, competency. Um, you know, when I sat next to Rich Lerner uh, on the show, and I've been lucky to sit next to Rich Lerner, uh, just, you know, again, I'm always trying to listen. And the stuff that comes out of his mouth sometimes, like, you know, it. I think it's easy to take for granted that, you know, he's up there doing a job, and, you know, he said whatever sounded good. But when you really listen to his questions and, um, his essays, you know, there's a, there's a deep, deep level of confidence there, which comes about through hard work, you know? So, you know, conscientiousness, um, competence, um, and those things, you know, give a person their confidence, you know, passion, you know, you're lucky if you can find something you're passionate about, doesn't matter what it is. Um, you know, we were, my wife and I were having dinner last year, the year before. Okay. And our waiter came over to us, and I could tell, you know, I couldn't quite place his accent. And it turns out he was from Lithuania, and he was lit up about his job, you know, off the charts lit up. And so I started asking him where he was from, what the country was like, how long he'd been here in the United States. And, you know, he had just gotten his citizenship. And he almost started crying about what it meant to be a citizen of this country. And then, I kid you not, he started singing the national anthem. Does he Loud, have a good voice? Great voice. Operatic. What, what restaurant? Uh, it's called Christner's here okay. in town. Steakhouse. Okay. It okay. used to be uh, uh, Del Frisco's, but it's now Christner's. 
And um, so he starts singing the national anthem. And the whole restaurant gets up, puts their hand on their heart. Oh, my goodness. And listens to him. And then, and then he, 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 I mean, look, I mean, politics, you can disagree with it or whatever, but there are people that feel this way. And he leans in and he's like, Donald Trump is the greatest president. Off he goes, you know, and I'm like, this guy is so lit up to be a U.S. citizen. And, you know, it's, it's so easy to take for granted the things in this country that, that are extraordinary, you know, um, the ability to chase a dream, you know. Uh, and here this guy was chasing a dream. And, you know, wasn't that long after that, my son was doing an internship in D.C. Uh, for a congressman. He's a real political junkie, my son. And so I got a place in D.C., and I was there, and our, our taxi driver uh, was from Iraq. And I started asking him about how long he was here, and he said, well, he'd come over here like 25 years ago. He's been driving a cab for 25 years. And he had three kids. Two of them were doctors. One of them was an engineer, and he had paid for their school driving a cab. And, and you know, he turned, he's driving a cab, and he's like, you have no idea how great this country is. And I'm like, well, I think I do. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, you know, he's absolutely in love. You're like, which country? Texas? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Texas is the only only state that can fly their flag at the same height as the United States flag. How did that happen? Well, because it was its own nation. So ah. when they started squabbling over whether or not they were going to join the United States, somewhere in the debate, I guess that came up. And, and uh I've never, I never actually looked to see if they'd do it, but you could do it. They could, and that's, could that's, that's enough. <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> that's enough. Secession was a real real issue for those people. I'm into it. Yeah. What uh, we're, I know you got to get out. Um, this has been a great talk, and I want to yeah, thank I really you. I really enjoyed it. Um, I've got two more questions. So yeah. the first one's pretty quick. What is your biggest fault? Uh, probably a lack of patience um although i i totally I, can't relate moving on yeah <laughs> i work on it i work on it and, you know and, and being married to bailey i've really i've like you know i've really learned to um just slow down a little bit you know um and and probably i mean again bailey helps me in this regard is um you know i get so singularly focused on one thing at the exclusion of others so, you know, my day-to-day -day comings and goings, you know, correspondence, you know, Bailey will get at me. You know, she's like, you know, she's, she's very good about that. But um, I'm not the best at, you know, getting back to people, you know. Um, I just get lost in my work and blink and it's midnight and I got to go to bed. Um, but uh, I could certainly be better and, you know, I could certainly be better at that. Uh, my correspondence, keeping up with. You know, uh, I, I met a guy in 1983. I went out to Riviera on a pilgrimage. And that day I met this, this, this foursome. I started giving them grief. They were on the 18th tee. And they invited me in for drinks. And, you know, one of the fellas there um, had started all in the family. Uh, he was one of the two. It was Bud York. And another guy was a fellow by the name of Guy McElwain, who was at the time president of the Columbia Pictures. And then... There was a fellow there by the name of Rudy Duran. And Rudy Duran, as we were sitting there talking, he was, you know, talking about his friendship here and there, whatever. And he turned to me. And I'd known this guy an hour. And he looked at me. 
And he goes, friendship is serious business. And, I mean, it was just a cold stare, you know. And he's like, pointed his finger, he's like, friendship is serious business. And I could tell he had a knack for friends. And I thought, you know, this guy's going to be my friend forever. And he has been. I mean, we're eons down the road. He's best friends with, with Nicholson. And every time I go to L.A., I never ask him about Jack. And I don't know how many years goes by. And he, we were driving in the car one night. And he's like, how come you never asked me about Jack? And I say, well, I don't know. It's not that I'm not interested in Jack. It's just that you're my buddy. And I watch everybody try to get to Jack through Rudy. And, and uh, he said, well, you know, Jack likes you. And I was like, Jack knows who I am? And he goes, oh, yeah. And so, you know, he says to his car, call the colonel, because that's what he called him, Colonel Jessup from A Few Good Men. His nickname was Colonel. So he says, call the, call the colonel. So the maid answers and says, hello, Jack Nicholson's resident. He said, yeah, there's roots for the colonel. And Hold on a second. And uh, so all of a sudden you hear this voice. It's like, roots, how the hell are you? And Roots goes, uh, Rudy goes, uh, guess who I got in my car? I'm sorry, can I cuss on here? Yeah. He goes, guess who, guess, yeah. uh, guess who I got in my car? You heard on the other end, how the fuck should I know? <laughs> 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 and he goes, well, I got, uh, got Brandon Chevy in my car. He goes, oh, yeah? Ask him why he shot 75 on Sunday. <laughs> so, so, you know, that's, that's my buddy Rudy. And, you know, 1983 was a long, long time ago, and we're still great friends. But I could do a better job of corresponding, keeping up. Um, mm. You know, I, I, get, I get lost. We all do in our comings and goings, and, and we're busy. But Rudy, Rudy, I mean, he, you know, he sends me messages all the time. And you realize, you know, I, I probably have three or four really good friends, great friends. And um, friendship is serious business. And, and you need to you need to stay in touch a little better than I, I normally do. Well, I think I can take something from that, and probably all of us can, as as we realize that life is, uh, you know, made up of a lot of things, but the few things are the most important, like those. Yeah. yeah.